Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, and we are going to re-engage in uh, our study of this great gospel that we began this past fall and took a break over the Christmas holiday, and we are um, here in John chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 22, and we're going to be looking uh, at the remainder of this chapter, verses 22 through 36, and uh, really looking at... uh, last picture of the great forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know him as John the Baptist. John chapter 3, verse 22. John records, after these things, Jesus and the disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that your spirit authored this text through the pen of John, and we need the spirit, your spirit, to illuminate us, to understand what you meant here, and to show us how this applies to our lives. Lord, as the preacher this morning, I feel the need to pray that I would decrease so that Christ could increase. Lord, may Christ be magnified and exalted today through his word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this summer I had the opportunity to read a very comforting and convicting little book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor by D.A. Carson, a man that you may be familiar with. Uh, The book is a brief biography of Carson's father who ministered in relative obscurity all of his life as a pastor in Canada. And uh, the reason why Carson wrote the book is because he believes that his dad represented the many unsung pastors who don't aspire to greatness, but rather to godliness, and who are simply content to faithfully labor in a small acre of God's vineyard with which he entrusts to them. In the preface of this book, he said this, quote, most of us serve in modest patches, 
Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands. They'll not write influential books. They will not supervise large staffs, and they will never see more than modest growth. They will plug away at their care for the aged, at their visitation, at their counseling, at their Bible studies and preaching. They cannot possibly discern whether the constraints of their own sphere of service owe more to the specific challenges of the local situation or to their own shortcomings. Once in a while, they will cast a wistful eye on successful ministries. Many of them will attend the conferences sponsored by the revered masters and come away with a slightly discordant combination of, on the one hand, gratitude and encouragement, and on the other, jealousy, feelings of inadequacy, and guilt. He understands ordinary pastors. He concludes, he says, most of us, let us be frank, are ordinary pastors. And I would add, most of us are ordinary Christians. And if you're like me, there is a smoldering desire in your heart to be more than just ordinary. You want to be great. You want to be known. You want to be well thought of, highly regarded, maybe even famous. The question is, what is true greatness? What does it look like? What, what makes a person great? Well, we know according to the world standards, what makes a person great is coming from a, a well-known family, earning some academic degrees, attaining some high political uh, or religious position, winning some prestigious awards, uh, having some kind of athletic uh, a prowess or artistic ability, being popular, wearing the right clothes, uh, driving the right cars, etc., etc., Well, this morning, we are going to look at a man who had none of these things. He was born in an obscure family. He had no academic degrees. Uh, He never held any political or religious offices. Uh, He never won any prestigious awards. He had no athletic ability that we know of artistic talent. He was not popular in the world sense of the terms. He was not wealthy. In fact, he wore shabby clothes and even ate bugs. And yet it's recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that Jesus said, quote, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Luke records that Gabriel told John's father, Zacharias, in prophesying about his birth, that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And so in the world's eyes, John the Baptist wasn't considered great at all. He was considered a freak. He was considered a a weirdo, someone who needed his head examined, someone who was despised and looked down upon. He was definitely not a person that anyone would want to emulate. But in God's eyes, you ready for this? He was the greatest man who ever lived. And so as we look at John the Baptist's final testimony here, Uh, kind of his uh, swan song, if you will, Uh, his final appearance um, in uh, in the Gospel of John, and and he shares his testimony regarding Christ, we're going to learn what made him great in God's eyes. And verses 22 through 36 can really be divided into two sections. And verses 22 through 30 talk about John's humility, John's humility. And uh, verses 31 through 36 are really John's testimony. 
John's testimony of, of, of Christ. Now, under each of the, in the, each of these two sections, we're going to see some things going on here. And under, in the section on John's humility, we're going to see five reasons why Jesus thought John was so great. And then in the section of John's testimony, we're going to see five reasons why John thought Jesus was so great. And they both thought each other was great. And we're going to find out why. Let's look first of all at John's humility in verses 22 through 30 and notice the five reasons why John, or excuse me, why Jesus thought John was so great. First of all, first reason was he faithfully fulfilled his ministry until the very end. He faithfully fulfilled his ministry to the very end. Look at verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. That phrase, after these things, is simply referring to after Jesus turned water into wine uh, in Cana, after he had traveled to Jerusalem with his family and his disciples to celebrate the Passover, where in righteous indignation he had cleansed the temple, and then uh, that was the end of chapter 2, and then also uh, he conversed with Nicodemus about the new birth, how uh, to be born again, that was chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. After this, after all this, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem And they traveled into the rural regions of Judea where he was preaching and his disciples were baptizing those who wanted to turn from their sin and follow Christ. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, note this, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So apparently Jesus never, never actually baptized people, but his disciples did. Notice verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. By the way, I think that phrase is a little veiled reference to baptism by immersion, right? Because there was a lot of water. You don't need a lot of water if you're just sprinkling people, pouring water on people's heads, but you need a lot of water if you're going to immerse people. And so we, we see the biblical pattern of baptism by immersion here. But notice it says they were baptizing there, and people were coming or being baptized. Now, we don't know where exactly this Anon near Salim uh, is located. It's somewhere in Samaria along the Jordan River, somewhere between the Sea of Galilee and, and the Dead Sea. But I think it's important to note here, it says that John also was baptizing, uh, for John had not yet been thrown into prison, verse 20. Now, this is helpful because John's gospel fills in the gaps. Remember, it was written much, um, much after uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you look at Matthew and, and, uh, and, and Mark, they seem to indicate that John's arrest uh, happened uh, immediately after Jesus came out of the wilderness uh, from being tempted. And uh, that's where they place it in their gospels. Um, in other words, that, that John went off the scene and Jesus came on the scene. Well, that's not necessarily the case. According to, the, to John, he said that there was some overlap in the ministries of Jesus and John uh, for a period of time before John got arrested, if you remember, by Herod Antipas. 
um, for calling out his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And um, John confronted that. John the Baptist confronted that. And so Herod arrested him and, and threw him in jail. And as you know, uh, the story, um, one day at his uh, birthday party, uh, his daughter of this um, adulterous wife uh, did a dance, and he enjoyed it so much, he said, I'll give you whatever you want. You just tell me. And so she went back to her mom and said, hey, mom, what should I ask for? And she said, ask him for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Because she was vindictive. She was bitter. She was angry. She wanted to get revenge on this prophet who had called out their marriage and exposed them as the adulterers that they were. But before his death, John the Baptist, as we know, received widespread attention for his radical message, his radical methods, uh, and yet his testimony about Jesus being the Messiah was really rejected by the majority of the nation of Israel. And so in many ways, he had a thankless ministry Um, And yet he continued to faithfully serve up until the time he was arrested. And he eventually died a martyr's death for boldly speaking out for the truth. And so I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus deemed him as the greatest man who ever lived. Because he could have very easily, as soon as Jesus showed up, you know, and said, Oh guys, by the way, there he is, follow him. And he went over and sat under a tree and, and sipped tea, you know, for the rest of his life, you know, but he didn't. He continued to serve faithfully being a part of the kingdom of God and and pointing people to Christ along the way. And so I think he was great in Jesus's eyes because he faithfully fulfilled his ministry to the very end. Secondly, he confidently rested in the sovereignty of God. He confidently rested in the sovereignty of God. Notice verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And we know that the Jews were very meticulous about purification rites and purifying themselves before meals and washing and all these things. And and so there was some discussion that was brought up. And it may have been that uh, this really had to do with whose baptism was better or more effective, John's or Jesus, because baptism was in some ways, a rite of purification in those days um, before it was believer's baptism as we know it that doesn't have anything to do with cleansing your sins, purifying you from your sins. It's simply a, a picture of salvation in Christ. The, bat, the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ uh, is pictured there in baptism. But in this case, there may have been a reference here to, to whose baptism was better. And to John's disciples, it appeared that John... And Jesus were in competition with one another, operating on the same turf. Notice verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Well, apparently not, because John still had some people to baptize, right? He was baptizing at the same time. And so... John's disciples were concerned that their leader's ministry was being eclipsed or overshadowed by Jesus' ministry. And they were feeling threatened and maybe even a bit jealous. And I think anyone who has ever been involved in any kind of ministry knows this temptation to compete and to compare with other ministries and, and measure your gifts and your achievements and your successes against those of others. And we see this often in Scripture, and some of 
Some of the greatest men in the Bible face this same problem of competition and comparison, mainly from their followers. And yet, what evidenced their greatness, these great men, what made them great is their humble response. Uh, The first example I can think of is Moses back in Numbers chapter 11. Remember, Moses um, was uh, leading the people of Israel. Uh, He was the the premier leader, the one that everybody looked to for direction. He was the voice of God, if you will, to the people. Numbers chapter 11, verse 26 says that two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad, and the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. And so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Mildad are prophesying in the camp. Kind of a little tattletale, right? And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And so here's even godly Joshua, right? Moses' right-hand man, his heir apparent, was concerned and said, hey, tell these guys to quit it. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. I'm not about to restrain these guys, man. If the spirit of God's in this, man, I wish more people were prophesying. And we know this was evidence of Moses' humility. In fact, the very next chapter, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Even Jesus had to deal with this with his disciples in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, the disciples were bickering amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And uh, John, uh, actually the author of the Gospel of John, here himself, was caught up in this jealousy, this feeling threatened by other people who were apparently opposed or in competition with Jesus. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is what? For you. In other words, hey, if he's not against us, he's on our side. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, had to deal with some um, fellow preachers who were taking advantage of the fact that he was in prison. This is Philippians 1 verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am pointed for the events of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And then he goes on and says, those guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. Is that what he says? No, verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I could care less who's preaching and what they're preaching, as long as Christ is being proclaimed. Again, very humble responses when God chooses to bless other people's ministries around you. Notice John the Baptist's godly response, humble response, in verse 27, back in John chapter 3, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing 
unless it has been given him from heaven. In other words, if someone is more gifted than you or their ministry is more blessed than yours, they have more people coming to their church, coming to their grow group, coming to their small group, coming to their Sunday school class, coming to you fill in the blank, right? It's because God has sovereignly chosen to bless them and therefore he's the one that gets all the glory. The reason why Jesus' ministry was being more blessed, if you will, than John's ministry at the time is because that's the way God wanted it. That's the way God had ordained it in his sovereign plan. The psalmist says this, Psalm 75, verse 6, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one, and he exalts another. And that's what he was doing. He was exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, For who regards you as superior, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, everything you have is a gift from the Lord. You received it from the Lord. You can't take any credit for it. And, and, and anyone else that you see who's, who's maybe going and blowing in ministry and doing something that you wish you could be doing, and why isn't the Lord blessing my ministry like he's blessing that guy's ministry or that person's ministry? Listen, they didn't receive anything but that which God sovereignly chose to bless them with. And so we need to remember that all gifts and all abilities and all opportunities and all blessings and all successes come from the sovereign hand of God. And this is a liberating principle that can revolutionize our lives and our ministries. I mean, once we come to grips with this truth, it will free us to serve the Lord without struggling with jealousy and insecurity and despondency or, or bitterness. We can just minister with sheer joy. You see, focusing on, on what God is doing in and through other people in their lives and their ministries, it will only serve to distract us and discourage us. Turn to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John 21. This is one of my favorite accounts of Jesus and his lead disciple, Peter. John 21 is the account where Jesus restored Peter after he denied Christ three times before his, his death. Jesus met him at the Sea of Galilee and three times asked him, Peter, do you love me? For every time that he had denied him, he was given an opportunity to express his love for Christ in verses 15, 16, and 17. But then notice how Jesus prophesied about Peter's future as the leader of the church. He said in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. You say, what is he talking about? Well, verse 19 tells us. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And so he was referring to the fact that he was going to be arrested, he was going to be bound, and he was ultimately going to be crucified. If you remember, upside down, because he didn't want to be crucified, didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Master. And so he said, this is what's going to happen. And then Jesus said at the end of verse 18, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Interesting. Um, the very next 
phrase in verse 20, Peter turning around. (laughs) Basically, hey, Peter, stay focused on me. Follow me. Well, the first thing he did was what? And what did he do? Why was he turning around? Because he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Now, you got to know that might have been an issue among the disciples, right? That it was clear that Jesus had a unique relationship with John. Um, He was probably his closest disciple. He was the one that had the privilege of sitting next to him, uh, leaning back on his chest, asking Jesus questions, whispering back and forth. And I can just imagine Peter, maybe the other disciples sitting around that table and uh, maybe struggling with that a little bit, wishing that that was them wishing that they were that loved by Jesus as, as John was, that they, they had that kind of relationship. That happens all the time, right? You, you have people, you have friends, and it seems like that your friend is closer to that person than they are with you, and that kind of bothers you, that hurts you. Sometimes that offends you, right? And, and we have these dynamics. And so Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Well, what about this guy? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, hey, Peter, it really doesn't matter what I've chosen for him and what I've ordained for him, okay? What is that to you? It's none of your business. You follow me. You do what I called you to do. And God regularly uses this passage to just tenderly rebuke me and remind me to be grateful for the acre in his vineyard that he's given to me to tend and to get my focus back on him when I maybe see somebody else prospering or somebody else getting a a unique opportunity or somebody else seems to have a more blessed ministry than me. I'm reminded of these words, what's that to you? Well, what's that to you? You be faithful to what I've called you to be and what I've called you to do. Bottom line, it's not a competition, right? Be content with God's plan, God's sovereign plan for your life and your ministry. And so John was content to occupy the place that God had sovereignly ordained for him. And I think that's why Jesus considered him to be the greatest man who ever lived. There's a third reason here why Jesus thought John was great is because he accurately perceived his role and capabilities. He accurately perceived his role and capabilities. Notice verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses, he says to his disciples, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. And so John John was just reminding his disciples what he had already told them, that he was not the Messiah. He was simply the forerunner of the Messiah. He was sent by God to prepare people's hearts to receive his son, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. And we've been learning this throughout the first a few chapters of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 8 says that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, came and questioned John, as to who he was, he confessed and did not deny. He said, I confess, I am not 
the Christ. Verse 23, he said, I'm, I'm simply a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Verse 29, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then finally in verse 34, he says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John knew his place. It was to point people to Christ, not to himself. And so he was not about to usurp Christ's place, Christ's role, Christ's position. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, in the context of spiritual gifts and how the Spirit of God gives each believer a gift or gifts to use in the body of Christ, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Anybody ever done that? Been guilty of thinking more highly of yourself than you should? He says, But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, God has given out to you certain gifts, certain abilities, certain strengths, right? And you got to know what those are. And, and sometimes people that have certain maybe behind-the-scenes gifts long for those upfront gifts, right? Those more, uh, you know, um, prestigious gifts. And, and they get upset that they can't do those things. Well, Guess what? It may be that you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought because this is how God's gifted you. This is how God's wired you. This is the place that he's put you in. You need to be able to be perceptive of, of where you are most gifted and what you're best wired to do. Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, you need to know what gift the Lord has given you and be content to serve in that role. And John's role, again, was to point people to Jesus so they would make much of him rather than much of John. And so again, Jesus considered John great because of that. He understood his role. He understood his capabilities. Number four, another reason why Jesus thought that John was Great was that he greatly rejoiced in the privilege of serving Christ. He greatly rejoiced in the privilege of serving Christ. Look at verse 29, a beautiful image here. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And so here John likens himself to the friend of the bridegroom. He's not the bridegroom. He's not the, the guy getting married, okay? He, he's the one to support and serve the one being married. This would be similar to the best man in weddings today, the one who's responsible for helping organize and oversee the wedding uh, of, of a friend, of a best friend, and maybe even emceeing the, the evening. But listen to what one commentator uh, said about the, the role, the unique role that a friend of the bridegroom played at a Jewish wedding. Quote, he acted as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing for his task 
was completed. What a great picture of the ministry or the role of John the Baptist in serving as the liaison between Jesus, the groom, and his bride, the church. We know this, is, uh, this imagery is drawing or alluding to the Old Testament uh, where um, Israel is de- depicted as God's bride. It's also anticipating the New Testament imagery of the church being the bride of Christ. But can you imagine um, being at a wedding, hopefully it wouldn't be yours, where the best man didn't understand his place in that wedding? That he was just, he was just obnoxious and it was all about him? And, and, and he was trying to upstage the groom and, and be the center of attention, and he was loud and obnoxious, and, 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 just, and, and people were going, all the focus was taken off the groom and the bride because of this obnoxious best man who insisted on being the center of attention. Well, John the Baptist said, there's no way I would ever do that because the servant of Christ doesn't exalt himself. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul said, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And let's face it, sometimes we get in the way of Jesus. We try to steal the attention. We try to steal Jesus' show instead of letting him steal our show, right? If you listen to Toby Mac, he's got a song right now about stealing the show and who steals whose show. You know, I appreciate the, the Puritans of old that it was said that on many of their pulpits, they had inscribed somewhere here in clear view of the preacher a simple phrase, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. A helpful reminder to, uh, to, to not make it about you. The, they, the people didn't come to see you, right? They came to see Jesus. And I think if a, a preacher does his job, in a way that God would have them to, that people don't walk out of the place with the preacher in mind. They, they leave with Jesus in mind. I have an old Bible in my office that I used um, in the early days of, of ministry in Bible college, and, and I remember I wrote in the front cover a, a phrase that I had heard somebody say one time, and it simply says that, that, that G, people can't think you're a great preacher and Jesus is a great Savior all at the same time. So you gotta take you gotta take a take your choice, right? Pick. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna you want people to think you're a great preacher, or do you want th- people to think Jesus is a great savior? Notice what he says here. He says, I rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's gr- voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, the, the, the news that John's disciples brought to him, rather than discourage him, rather than bum him out and make him sad, it made him happy. He was excited. He was rejoicing that the ministry of Christ was flourishing. That's exactly what he wanted to happen. And so I think this is a good place to ask ourselves the question that when others succeed or receive some special honor or are blessed in some special way with maybe a unique opportunity, can you genuinely and sincerely say, I am so happy for you? Or is it more like, I am so happy for you? Or maybe you can't even get those words out of your mouth.
See, we all at times, I think, are tempted to become jealous, to get bitter, to, to have a pity party, right? When somebody else gets to do something that we really want to do. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, talking about the body of Christ and how it functions together. And Paul said, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I read a story about F.B. Meyer, who was um, an excellent preacher in his own right, who ministered in London during the same time as C.H. Spurgeon. You've all heard of Spurgeon, but you probably maybe haven't heard of F.B. Meyer. In fact, it said that F.B. Meyer would actually stand on the steps of his church on Sunday morning and watch all the carriages go by on the way to the Metropolitan Tabernacle for the people to go hear C.H. Spurgeon. It's told that he was at a conference. He was invited by D.L. Moody to a conference, and he, F.B. Meyer, and G. Campbell Morgan were some of the speakers, and and, uh, he said that uh, whenever G. Campbell Morgan preached, I mean, the sessions were just packed out. And uh, kind of the attendance at his messages were kind of sparse. And, and it made him sad. And so he went back to his room and he prayed. And he was later heard saying, quote, have you heard Morgan preach? Did you hear that message this morning? My God is upon that man. It's a good example of what we should do when we're feeling that that temptation to be jealous or to be bitter or to be hurt, to have that pity party, we should begin praying and asking the Lord to help us work through that and to bless whoever it is maybe we're feeling jealous about and, and then maybe we could go out of that prayer time and go and, and, and bless them and encourage them and speak kind words to them and about them. And so this is another reason why Jesus considered John to be so great, because he greatly rejoiced in the privilege of serving Christ. And then lastly, uh, he, he willingly minimized himself to magnify Christ. He willingly minimized himself to magnify Christ. And here is one of the most familiar phrases or verses in all of the scriptures. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. And so John knew his job. His job was to prepare the way and then get out of the way. And I think all of us need to learn that same lesson. We, need to, we just need to get out of Jesus' way, right? Because we all tend to want to be in the spotlight. We want to have center stage. And so John humbly and gladly bowed out of the spotlight so Jesus could take center stage. He wanted Christ to be magnified. There's a story about the great conductor, Arturo Toscanini, who one evening conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it was such an amazing performance. When it ended, the crowd just went absolutely wild, and they were clapping, and they were cheering and whistling and hollering and stomping their feet, and they were absolutely caught up in the greatness of the performance. And as every conductor does, Toscanini bowed repeatedly, and then afterwards he acknowledged his orchestra, and when the ovation finally began to subside, Toscanini turned to his musicians and whispered with a tone of humble adoration, he said, gentlemen, I am nothing. You are nothing. But Beethoven is everything. And I think that could be said of us, that 
I am nothing. You are nothing. Jesus is everything. I can't think of a better motto for life and ministry than verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. An extremely humble statement made by an extremely humble man. That's John's humility. Now let's look quickly at his testimony, okay? And this next, these next few verses as that really wrap up this chapter, I believe are connected here, and I want, I want us to see them together because John put them here purposely, flowed them together for, I think, our, our, our help here. And uh, here we see John's testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know, before we look at these verses, that Bible students debate whether these words are John the Baptist's words or John the Evangelist's words. Some say it was probably John, the author of the gospel, because it sounds very familiar to what he's already said in this prologue, kind of has the same tone, has a, has a tone of kind of a reflective review of everything he said up until this point. So it, very, it could be that this is John the evangelist or the writer of the gospel. Either way, it really doesn't change the interpretation of these verses because the point here in these verses is simply this, that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. And so either John the evangelist was affirming that Jesus was far superior to John the Baptist or John the Baptist himself was admitting that Jesus was far superior to him. And I would like to think that it's the latter, which would mean that John the Baptist was continuing his thought from verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease, and he was explaining why Jesus must increase and he must decrease. And so he goes on to to, to share why he thought Jesus was so great, so much greater than him. And so let me just give you these reasons very quickly. We won't spend much time on them because, again, much of this material is simply review of what we've already studied in the first couple of chapters. But the first reason why John thought Jesus was so great, why he must increase and he must decrease, was that he originally descended from heaven and ranked higher than him. He originally descended from heaven and ranked higher than him. Notice verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, hey, I came from the earth, okay? And so I speak of the earth, but not Jesus. Jesus came from heaven. And so he speaks from heaven, and that puts him above me and everyone else, for that matter. Jesus was far above, far superior to any other earthly teacher or leader. Secondly, the reason why John knew that Jesus was so much greater than he was is that he perfectly revealed the truth about God. He perfectly revealed the truth about God. Notice verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set a seal to this, that God is true. In other words, there was no better revealer of the truth about God than God's Son, or we could say God Himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And so Jesus' words came straight from God himself because before he came to this earth, he had spent eternity past communing with God the Father in heaven. We know that from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And so here with Jesus, we have firsthand, not secondhand information, right? You can't always count on secondhand information. You can't always believe that, but you can believe firsthand information. Jesus was a primary source. John the Baptist was a secondary source. In other words, Jesus saw God with his own eyes, if you will. He heard what he heard with his own ears, okay? And so those who receive Christ's testimony confirm that God is truthful, but those who reject Christ are basically calling God a liar. 1 John 5.10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And so Jesus perfectly revealed the truth about God. There's, there's no one better to trust, right, than the one who was there himself. Thirdly, John knew that Jesus was greater because he was a fully endowed with the Holy Spirit's power. He was fully endowed with the Holy Spirit's power. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And so I think here is a reference to the fact that the prophets of old indeed spoke the words of God, but Jesus was the Word himself, the Word incarnate. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a limited time, for a limited purpose, but Jesus was fully endowed, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know that from what John said, how he recognized him back in John chapter 1, verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. One commentator really was helpful to, I think, understand what John was saying here. Quote, Jesus' experience of the Spirit was more intense, more effective than any other person's in part because he committed no act to grieve the Spirit, thus quenching his influence and force. I don't know about you, but I can't say that the Spirit of God is fully endowed in my life because I frequently quench and grieve the Spirit. And so I dull his power, I blunt his force, his impact in my life through my sin. But that was not true of Jesus. In Christ, the Spirit of God was fully, the power of the Spirit was fully unleashed. And therefore, he was greater than a sinful prophet, even though he be John the Baptist. Number four, Jesus got, uh, John knew Jesus was greater because he was dearly loved by the Father and bestowed with all authority. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus is a special object of God's attention, God's affection, and the Father has given the Son all authority to accomplish his purposes. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus said that. So he was dearly loved and bestowed with all his authority. And then lastly, and most importantly, the reason why John knew that Jesus was greater than him and far superior and why he must decrease and Christ must increase is because Jesus was the one ultimately 
designated by God as the only way of salvation. That Jesus was ultimately designated by God as the only way of salvation. Notice verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so John gave only two options here when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can either receive him or you can reject him. There's no third option. And so we need to understand, based on this verse, that how we respond to Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. And that's why it's imperative that we believe and obey him. And notice, and we've talked about this a number of times already in verse 36, that believing and obeying are the very same thing. Notice how he uses these words synonymously, interchangeably. He who believes in the Son is eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so we often talk about, well, what does it mean to believe? Well, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, really? Do you obey Jesus? Because if you don't obey Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus. Obedience to Christ is essential to true saving faith. And this is not the only place in Scripture that references this. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Romans 1.5, through Christ we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Romans 16.26, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Hebrews 5.9, and having been made perfect, talking about Christ, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Wow, couldn't be any clearer than that, right? Who is Christ the source of eternal salvation? Those who obey him. 1 Peter 1.2, that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God and if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Doesn't say believe the gospel, right? It says obey the gospel. And so when we understand true belief, True faith, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's an obedient faith. And we have to have these concepts really integrated together. So what is the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, he says they will experience here, John 3, 36, they will experience the wrath of God. Now, I know this is not a popular Subject. In fact, it's a, a politically incorrect subject. It's not a subject that's often talked about in the church today. But I think we need to understand what it means when the Bible talks about the wrath of God. This is one of his attributes, one of his character qualities, if you will, his wrath. 
which is simply his settled disposition and resolute action against sin. In other words, it's what he thinks of sin and what he must do about it. God hates sin, and he must punish it. And his punishment is eternity in hell. Listen, beloved, heaven is forever. Do you believe that? And so is hell. And so is hell. And eternal life is not just a future hope for those who receive Christ. It's a present possession. Notice it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, if you live a life of obedience to Christ, guess what? You have eternal life right now. You're living it. You're enjoying it right now. It's already begun. And in the same way, God's wrath is not just a future fear for those who reject Christ. It's a present reality. They are experiencing it right now. According to Romans 1, right? That the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so all that to say, as John the Baptist was intentionally and joyfully fading into the background so that Jesus could take center stage, he knew that what was ultimately at stake was not his reputation, but our salvation. And he didn't want to do anything to mess that up. He knew Jesus was the only one who could save people who were helplessly bound in sin and hopelessly bound for hell. And so he ended his ministry, if you will, here by appealing for people to believe and obey Jesus Christ, and he explained the eternal result of their choice, either eternal salvation or eternal damnation. How your life goes here on earth and where your soul goes for all eternity depends on what you choose to do with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it convicts us and challenges us and comforts us and encourages us. And Lord, we need to hear this message this morning. We need the example of John the Baptist who, who said, I must decrease so that Christ must increase. Lord, may that be our mantra. May that be our passion. May that be our goal is to be minimized so that you could be magnified. And Lord, we thank you that there are so many reasons why Jesus is worthy of our confident trust and hope to put our entire life and eternity and destiny in his hands because of who he is and what he said and what he did. And Lord, I would ask that you would be gracious to anyone here who is yet to receive Christ, to believe in Christ, to commit their life to obey and follow Christ. Lord, that today... Lord, would be the day of their salvation, that you would grant them genuine repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, that their life might be transformed and they would know the joy of living abundant life now and have the hope of eternal life in heaven, Lord, that we might uh, be able to serve Christ together and uh, we would find great joy and excitement 
in, in seeing Christ exalted and us being forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.